Well, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, and let's bow and go to the Father in prayer. Father, it's good to be back here together tonight, and I pray that you will just illuminate us with your word, that you would breathe life into the scriptures and uh, open our eyes, Father. Lord, we recognize, or I, I recognize at least, that this, this section that we're looking at tonight is, is hard and um, it's very serious, and I pray that you'll give us hearts to take it that way. That again, as we apply these things, Father, to our lives, as well as to the church, as well as to this church, that, Lord, we would take you seriously. And that we would know that you love us so much that you want us to know what is true and right. And, Father, I pray that you would train our hearts to live that way. Exalting, Father, in grace, but desiring so much to be like Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you will teach us, that you will guide us, you'll lead us through these words, word by word and verse by verse. Again, that we might take a step closer to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you one more time to look back at chapter 1, verse 19. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 19, which is what? It's the divine outline. Very good. And we're going to keep hammering that home. We probably will a little less now that we're, we're getting as far along as we are. Do you realize that with the conclusion of our study this evening... We will have made it two-thirds of the way through the book of Revelation. Isn't that exciting? Now you may look at the chapters and go, wait a minute, we've done three chapters out of 22, and I may not be great with fractions. Did you know, by the way, that five-fourths of people don't understand fractions at all? Anyway, so we, we're finished. Some of you are going, wow. There's a lot of people that don't get it. Um, we're <laughs> we're going to finish chapter 3, but chapter 3 is two-thirds of the way through this book. How does that work? Well, the divine outline tells us. Therefore, write, Jesus says to John, the things which you have seen, which is chapter 1, the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. That's the first third of the book. Chapter 1 is the first third of the Revelation story. Chapters 2 and 3 are the second third where Jesus says, write the things which are the church age. Chapter 2, chapter 3, dealing with the seven churches. Tonight we deal with the seventh, the final church. And I think you will see how it applies amazingly to the church of today. The things which are the people of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. The people of Jesus Christ in chapters 2 and 3. Are you guys getting to where you're kind of just tracking this? To where if someone said, hey, tell me how you divide up the book, that you, that you could do it? Revelation 119, things which you have seen, Jesus glorified, the person of Jesus, things which are the church age, the people of Jesus Christ. And then the final third, the final third of this book, the things which will take place after these things. And we've talked about this, I want to just bring it up, remind you, I will remind you again, uh, two weeks by the way from tonight, we will not study Revelation next Sunday night. We're going to take next Sunday night off. Actually, I'm going to. My parents are in town. I'm going to take a breather. We'll be back two weeks from tonight to get on into chapter 4. But when we get there, chapter 4, verse 1, begins with this very phrase, after these things. In fact, John will repeat it twice 
in chapter in verse 1 of chapter 4. Why does he do that? He's giving us markers. Jesus is showing us. He's pointing these things out. When he says, write the things which will take place after these things, the next time that phrase, metatauta, metatauta in the Greek, the next time it's used, it's used twice in one verse, chapter 4, verse 1. So you know, aha, after these things. Here's where now we get into the final third of the book. The final third. Chapters 4 and 5. The church is in heaven. So get ready. The next time we meet to study, two weeks from tonight, we're going to heaven. I'm excited about that. Hopefully we're going to go before we ever get to that chapter. But if we don't, we're going to go on that night, at least in our study. Chapters 4 and 5, the church in heaven. Chapters 6 through 19, the tribulation. God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. At the end of chapter 19, Jesus comes back and wonderfully, amazingly, we come back with him. If you haven't heard that, if you haven't seen that before, it's incredible. But it's biblical truth. And then chapters 20. Chapter 20 is the millennium. That time where Satan is, he's pent up. He's he's basically in the prison for a thousand years. And Jesus is ruling and reigning. Why would Jesus rule and reign for a thousand years on earth? Because God said he would. Because God promised Israel that one would reign on the throne of David from Jerusalem, literally. Read Zechariah chapter 12 through 14. You cannot miss this amazing truth. He will set foot down, Zechariah tells us, on the Mount of Olives. And he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. It's going to be an amazing time. Chapter 20. And then chapters 21 and 22. The new heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new earth. God is making all things new. And that rounds out the whole book. But all of that takes place in the final third of the book. Now, whatever else we learn from this book, please remember, and always lock into this, this is the thing to dial into every time we open up to study. This book, more than anything else, is about Jesus. Revelation 19.10 tells us, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word testimony in Revelation 19.10 is marturia, which means evidence. The evidence of Jesus is the spirit, the pneuma, the breath of prophecy. In other words, prophecy breathes the evidence of Jesus, proves the reality of Jesus, brings the truth of Jesus to us. So, after these things... Jesus is glorified, the church age is played out, and we find the soon-to-unfold prophecy in Revelation 4 through 22. Now again, I realize we keep going over this and have covered Revelation 119 several times in the last 9, 10 weeks, however long we've been doing this. I just want you to get it. Once you have it, it locks in, it's there. And anytime someone says, well, I don't understand the book of Revelation, you can say, well, you know, it's not really that hard to understand. As John Corson, Pastor John Corson says over and over, it's not a hard book to understand. It's a very easy book to understand. If you will just take it chronologically, follow the flow, check out the divine outline. Now tonight, we view the last of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 3. In verse 14, that's where we'll start in just a moment. It's the final church letter from Jesus. It is the last, by the way, local church along that Roman postal route in Turkey, in Asia Minor, Turkey today. The last church prophetically represented in the last days. This is it. So what's the time frame of Laodicea? Now. Mark this, gang. The time frame of Laodicea is now. It is the church of today. Now, you may remember also, the church of today is Thyatira. Thyatira still remains in existence prophetically today. 
Thyatira, that picture of Roman Catholicism. And Sardis is still alive and well, well, dead and well today, because Sardis being the dead church, but the church of the Reformation, still in existence at this point today. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the church of the open door, the evangelical church, the church that's alive, that's vibrant, that's breathing. Oh, I pray that we are Philadelphia. I pray that the bridge, that this fellowship will always be about the business of Philadelphia and not Sardis the dead church and certainly not Laodicea. But all these churches find representation in the last days here. And this one, to me, is the worst. The worst. I want to begin by giving you straight A's. Several A words that will help you just kind of characterize and understand Laodicea before we get into the scriptures themselves. Things about Laodicea historically that you can know and understand. Once you understand these things, it it opens up this letter to more meaning and more sense. Number one, affluence. Affluence. Laodicea was the wealthiest city in this entire region. Laodicea was (laughs) filthy rich. Extremely wealthy. It was home to a massive banking system and there was great commerce through this city. Commerce coming in, commerce going out. Affluence. Secondly, amusement. Amusement. Laodicea was literally a mecca of entertainment in this region. It was the Hollywood or the Vegas of Asia Minor. There still remains in that region today, where Laodicea once stood, there, remains, there, uh, there are still remains of a 30,000 seat stadium along with two Roman theaters. And this city was known to be into entertainment 24-7. This was a place of amusement. So affluent, amusement. Number three, aqueduct. Aqueduct. Laodicea had hot to cold running water, or kind of. It had lukewarm running water. That's an interesting truth about Laodicea. Laodicea had a twin sister that was called Hierapolis. Uh, Paul refers to Hierapolis. He says in Colossians chapter 4 verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, Paul is writing for the church at Colossae. So there's a connection between Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, these three cities. They were closely related. And the one thing that connected all three of them was literally a running aqueduct, a watering system. All three of these cities were connected by it. It was an engineering marvel of the day, bringing hot water from the natural hot springs in Hierapolis down through Laodicea and onto Colossae. But the engineers flubbed up. They goofed. They made a mistake. They didn't realize that what was hot in Hierapolis, by the time it got all the way to Colossae, it was running cold. And as it ran through Laodicea, it was lukewarm. At best, the water that came through this town in this great running aqueduct was tepid, lukewarm water. Interesting. Hierapolis was hot. Colossae was cold. Jesus will say in a moment, I wish that you were either hot or cold. He's not into the lukewarm. But Laodicea was lukewarm. So affluence, amusement, aqueduct number four. Appeasement. 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 Today we would say political correctness. Because Laodicea was in a tricky political and military position. Unlike most cities built in the day, Laodicea could not defend itself militarily. 
It was in a region that was somewhat flat. Roads coming in, roads going out, no hills around it, no sea. It wasn't backed up to anything. It was just a town in the middle, and it could easily be attacked and taken. So the only way the city could stand, the only way the city could maintain any kind of safety was to play political games, to appease surrounding cities, surrounding nations, to be politically correct. Very interesting that that phrase has so much meaning in our world today, and this is prophetically a church for today. Appeasement. Number five, application. Application. And I'm not talking about how you would apply this letter, although you can. I'm talking about the application of an eye salve. For Laodicea was known to produce a world-famous eye salve. An eye salve. And here's how they did it. They took an odd-colored clay of the hills, they mixed it with an ointment from local plants, and they shipped it all over the known world. Aristotle referred to this eye salve from Laodicea in his writings. So these things, giving us just a picture, a snapshot of Laodicea, affluence, amusement, aqueduct, appeasement, and application, the visual eye salve of Laodicea. Remember those things now as we wander through this letter. But for all of this, if there is one church in seven, there is one church of any that we have studied to avoid, it's this one. If there's one church to not be like, it is sour, tepid Laodicea. Verse 14. I'm going to read the whole letter and we'll go back and look at it. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, the Lord says, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, famous verse here, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he, will, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now with this last letter, as with the previous six, there's that same outline that we've taken all along. We'll take it again. It's a partial revelation, a punitive admonition, a practical recommendation, and finally, an eternal motivation for things. Now you say, well, Rick, normally there are five. What about that other one? What about the positive affirmation? Well, Laodicea, like Sardis, doesn't receive a single positive comment from the Lord. Not one. He has nothing positive to say about Laodicea. But I will give you one more outline point that we'll begin with tonight that's different than the other letters. If you want to jot this down, number one, a pointed translation. A pointed translation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Look at the verse again. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Now, it's, I was thinking about this walking down here. Why is it that the translators are not specific? Sometimes in our translations, even in very, very good translations, the New American Standard Bible is the most accurate word-for-word translation we have. 
along with the King James, but it's even uh, experts even would consider the New American Standard more accurate than the King James. So why all the translation problems? Why, Rick, do you always give us the Greek word or the Hebrew word and say this is what it really means? Why doesn't it just tell us what it really means? The problem is when you have languages as colorful and as beautiful as Hebrew or Greek or even Aramaic, there are oftentimes numerous definitions for a single word. So the translators have to get together and they have to pray about it and pour over it and pick what they think is the best word. But there's also another bit of influence here, gang. And the influence is that they all have their backgrounds that they bring to the table as they try to define things and translate the Bible. Well, so are you saying the Bible's flawed? Not at all. God's Holy Spirit has guarded His Word down through the years. I believe in the accuracy of the Bible. But if you want to know the truth, I believe in the absolute accuracy of the original Hebrew and Greek. And what we get in the English... You know, my job, part of what I consider my job to be, is setting it close enough so that I know the best translation possible for the word and always feel free to challenge me on that look up the Greek word yourself get yourself by the way a Strong's Concordance if you don't have one Strong's Concordance is one of the best tools any of the student any student of the Bible can have because you can look up specific words a lot of times I'm not a Greek scholar gang not a Hebrew scholar but I have Strong's and I have other concordances that I can look up and I can check the word and test it and see well what what fits or what's, what looks like the best possible use of the word well here we have in the New American Standard it says to the angel of the church in Laodicea right but in the King James Version it is more accurate in the King James Version it says literally and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans the church of the Laodiceans the word here is emeso Emeso, and it means in or among. This may seem a little bit nitpicky, but the word missing here, I'm sorry, the word, this is not the word, the word missing here that's used in all the other letters is emeso. All the other letters, it will say, uh, write to the church in Sardis, emeso, or the, the church among the sardines, you know, emeso, or it'll say, little joke, it'll say to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the word in, it's emeso, but that word is not in this letter. In is not in, in is out. So all it basically says here, in truth, is how it's translated in the King James Version, under the, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Why is that important? Well, connect the fact that Jesus calls it the church of the Laodiceans with the name Laodicea and you'll have a complete picture. Laos meaning laity or the people. And dice, dice meaning rule. The people rule. The church of the Laodiceans. Not the church in Laodicea. Not the church belonging to Jesus in Laodicea. It's the church of the Laodiceans where the people rule. The rights of the people. Laodicea means the people rule. And this is one of the primary problems with the church prophetically and historically of Laodicea. It's the church of the people. It's the church about the people. It's the church for the people. It's the church by the people. Now you may remember the Nicolaitans. We studied them in, in a couple earlier letters that Jesus wrote. The Nicolaitans, Nicolaitan, laity the people again. Nico meaning power. Where we get Nike, our Nike shoes, the power over the people. The Nicolaitan cult was about power over the people, about ruling the people, about having control. 
We've seen churches, many of us have seen churches, highly controlling, wanting to control the people, drive the people in a certain direction that the leadership felt like was the best direction for the people to go. That's the Nicolaitan mentality. By contrast, the Laodiceans recognize the power of the people. And you go, oh, democracy, great. Democracy is a good thing, isn't it? Don't we benefit by democracy? A nation of the people, by the people, for the people? To a degree, yes. But to a degree, no. I think this will make more sense as we go on. This whole idea of the Nicolaitans, the Laodiceans, what would Jesus say to each of these people? To the Nicolaitans, he would say, no human, no human has the right to rule over anybody. No human being has the right to rule over others, to lord it, literally, lord it over other people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is what Jesus would say to the Nicolaitans, power over the people. Hey, you don't have the right. You want power, you want leadership, you want authority, you submit, you serve. That's where leadership in God's economy truly is at. But to the Laodiceans, he would say, no people have the right to rule over themselves. No people really have the ability to rule over themselves. While we as a nation are trying to plant democracy in other places, and some of you might get a little uncomfortable, uh-oh, Rick's going to challenge conservative thinking. No, I'm not. I'm not. Just relax. But I'll tell you something. I may be getting ahead of myself in my notes, but I will say this anyway right now. Our plan to place democracy in the Middle East will not save the Middle East. It's not going to do it. It may help. It may create a shift in the Middle East, but it's not going to save the Middle East. Democracy can't do it. Well, democracy saved us as Americans, has it? Really? Is your life better? Well, yeah, it's better maybe than it would have been under communist Russia or, or in some of these other countries. But has America saved you? A lot of people, America has messed them up big time and they've had to find Jesus to find salvation. So democracy is not the answer to the world. But let me get on with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus, or Paul says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things... Yeah, from whom are all things. And we exist, listen to this, we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through Him... Jesus alone is the one who has all authority, not the Nicolaitans. Jesus has the power and the authority over all the people. And the people don't have the power and authority. Jesus does because he came to serve, not to be served. He has authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, verse 18. So Laodicea. Laodicea is the church of the people, by the people, for the people. It's the popular church. It's the prosperous church. It's the pragmatic church and the polished church. It's the church that is well designed. It's, it's, it's thought out. And Jesus would say it's also powerless and it's putrid. And I will have nothing to do with it. Laodicea, the church there would say, hey, we're rich. We're well thought of throughout the region. We're a good looking group of people. And the Laodicean mentality is all around us. When you consider churches that are more interested in celebrity than in celebrating the Savior. 
this is interesting to me when churches will have in these big name speakers and that's you know NFL football star yeah let's draw a crowd with this guy and it's like who cares does he know the Lord I was at an Amy Grant concert one time this is years and years ago and she was talking about this very thing and talking about how you know people just love to drop names and, and it struck her one time when she was a young girl and in college that she knew the Lord I mean, if you want to drop a name, drop the name of someone that you really know, the creator of all things, the power of the entire universe. That, there's a name. I'll show up at that church. I'd love to see that on a church sign with God speaking Sunday. Woo! I want to be there. That's good. But churches want to celeb- uh, celebrate celebrity instead of the Savior. Churches more concerned with building their own empires, recreating themselves, uh, than they are with building the Lord's kingdom with being what the Lord wants and desires. Church is more concerned with their own personal rule than the personal rule of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has a message for this church. Laodicea. The church of the people. The church of the people both then and now. If you want a day, again, for Laodicea market, it's here and now. This is the church of today. This is the church I think as we continue, you're going to find yourself seeing. As you read through this letter, you're going to go, oh, That church is right around the corner from my house. Oh, I attended that church for years. It may make you a little uncomfortable. It did me. It did me. I ran programs that could have been purchased from the church at Laodicea. I've been involved in doing ministry at churches that were so about Laodicea, it's not even funny. It's actually rather frightening. And the Lord wants us to wake up. He wants us to hear this and to see this. Well, number two, the partial revelation. And there's a ton of amazing stuff just in this part. Jesus begins his partial revelation of himself to this church. And again, it applies to the condition of the church. He calls himself the Amen. And the faithful and true witness and the beginning of the creation of God. Three things he says about himself in this partial revelation. The first is the Amen. What is the Amen? What does that mean? The Amen, and it's so important today, it's so applicable that he would choose that name for himself to apply to the church today. Why is that, Rick? The Amen is the so be it. This is the way it is, the absolute. When we say in Jesus' name, Amen, at the end of a prayer, what we're saying is, in Jesus' name, let it be so. In Jesus' name, Lord, let this happen. Let this be. This is what my heart's cry is. Amen. Amen. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And John says, Amen. Let that absolutely happen. Let that be, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. There are, Jesus would say, to the church in this day and age, there are amens in this world. There are certainties. There are absolutes in a time in the church where relativism is creeping in in frightening ways. There are absolutes, things that you can sink your teeth into and say, this is truth. And it doesn't matter how the world has changed. It's still truth. And it's the same truth as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was 3,500 years before that. This is God's truth for all people of all times, of all cultures and all nations. No matter how we might change, God hasn't. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Amen. Why does He define Himself or refer to Himself in this way, talking to this group? Because this group needs to recognize that there are absolutes. This church of the relative age. The age where people say, hey, your truth is what you make it. It's it's whatever you want it to. It's your truth. You have your truth, and I have my truth. 
And your truth is different than my truth, and that's okay. We'll all just kind of have our own truths together. Someone's got to be wrong, folks. Someone's got to be out there. Someone's got to be missing it. When parents say, oh, we don't tell our children what they should do. We want them to figure it out on their own. Have you watched a kid try to figure it out on their own? I mean, some Sunday, just as a little test, we ought to send all the kids under age, say, eight. Back to the back and say, go fix yourself some hot chocolate, but we don't want to help you. You just have, just do it on your own. You'll figure it out. Can you imagine the mess back there? The little party they'd be having, you know, the chocolate packets going everywhere. I mean, it'd be out of control. And I have literally, I have had parents say to me, oh, I don't, I don't want to take my, my kids to church. Why not? I want them to figure it out on their own. Morons. <laughs> Sorry. But there are some things that are absolutely true, and kids don't just figure it out any more than you and I do. We have the absolutes of God, the certainties, the amen, so that the children don't have to just find their way. The children have a way. And the way is Jesus, the amen. Boy, that means something in today's world. Second thing he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. The Greek word for witness is marteo. It's where we get our word martyr. I am the faithful and true martyr. In other words, Jesus would say to you, and he would say to this church of wealth and church of prosperity and church of everything's good, the church of the people, Jesus would say, hey, if you want to look like me, if you want to act like me, if you want to live like me, at some point you are going to end up suffering for it. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be comfy. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be the church of the people. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, in a stunning verse, Paul says he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, who wouldn't want to know that? But then Paul says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know Jesus so well that I walk in the fellowship of his sufferings. That I experience some of that pain, some of that anguish, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Matt came up last week afterwards and he was talking about trying to understand what the father felt in that moment when he was separated from the son. And I love the question he asked. I'm not even going to share the whole conversation. It was a great conversation. But the question that he asked was so poignant. He said, I want to, I want to get a feeling. I, I want to understand the pain that God went through. My first thought was, no way. <laughs> You're not going to. But he wanted just to get a bead on it, you know, to get his hands around it. What was it like for God to feel that kind of pain in that moment of eternal separation, that literally that crack in time, when for the first time in all eternity, eternity past or eternity future, God the Father and God the Son were divided, separate because of man's sin. The pain that the Father felt. Matt wanted to feel some of that pain. He said, I want to understand the pain. That's what Paul's saying. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, his martyr, his martyrdom. I want to be like Christ. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, and I believe, by the way, godly is the operative word in this verse. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. It's going to happen. I think there are a lot of people who live, quote-unquote, in Christ Jesus, wearing, bearing the name of Christian, but they're not really wanting to live godly in Christ Jesus. What's the difference? Well, the difference is pursuing Christ as Paul did, saying, I want to be more like you, Jesus. I want my life to reflect you. And the more your life reflects Christ, the more your life is going to be subject to persecution. 
So here's a little hint for you. If you want the easy life and still be a Christian, show up at church on Christmas and Easter, pray occasionally, but don't let anybody know what you're doing. Don't get overly involved. For goodness sakes, don't carry a Bible to work or to school. Don't, don't act out. Don't wear a t-shirt that even mentions it. You hold that at bay. And by the way, good luck in ever knowing Jesus. Because it won't happen. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's the Marteo, the, the martyr. But what is he the faithful and true witness of? What is he the witness of? He is the witness, the Bible tells us, of the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And I said, wait a minute, Jesus is God, and no one has seen God at any time, but John saw Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation. Didn't John see God? Yes. In the only way that God can truly be seen, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And you may recall, by the way, in chapter 1, when John did see Jesus glorified, he flatlined. And go back and read it. He became like a dead man. Well, how do you become like a dead man? Well, your heart stops. <laughs> he was out cold just in this vision of Jesus. No man could see the Father. But Jesus has explained him, expressed him. Revealed him to us. Jesus is the one true witness of the Father. Now this, this last thing that Jesus says is really interesting. He says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Aha! The person involved in the cult would say, See? He was created. He says it himself. I'm the beginning of the creation. I'm the first thing created. And so the Jehovah's Witness would say, who, who believed that, that Jesus is actually an incarnation of Michael, the archangel, they would say, well, yeah, Jesus was great and everything, but he is a created being. And it says right there, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Well, the word beginning, and here's where it's important to know what the word says. If you're ever confused, by the way, by a word in the Bible or a verse, and you're not sure how it fits, Grab your Strong's Concordance, look up the word, and see what the actual definition is because it may answer your question for you as this one does. The word beginning is arche. Arche, where we get our word archaeology. Archaeology, where we study things, we dig up things, we pull out bones or structures left over from ancient cities, and we see the origins of a people. That's what the word means. The origin or the source. Beginning, yeah, you can use the word beginning. That's not the most accurate word, and it's not the word that fits the best. The word that fits the best of this word arche is the source. He is the source of the creation. Completely different thing, isn't it? For Jesus to be the source of the creation. The NIV says the ruler of ruler of God's creation. That's interesting. The NIV says the ruler of God's creation, which again... You know what it does? The NIV sidesteps a theological struggle. Because anybody can read the ruler of God's creation and go, Oh, good, okay, good, I'll just move on. And miss the point. This is more powerful, thank you for bringing that up, this is more powerful than saying that Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the source of creation. He is the very origin of creation itself. What do you mean? Listen to this. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus Christ. Verse 2 of John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. 
And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the source. Creation literally flowed through Him. In fact, Paul goes on, he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, By Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. But according to Colossians, Jesus would have been the creator of Lucifer. Remember we talked briefly this morning about Lucifer, Satan, not created as an evil being. Created as a being that, that did have choice, did have free will, but created as a being to worship God. An archangel, a, a cherubim, a guardian cherub, Lucifer is called. He's not brother to Jesus. Jesus created him. All things, Paul says, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, visible or invisible, they've been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Which means, by the way, that the very universe that we live in right now has not blown apart because Jesus, today, in this second, is still holding on. All it would take for everything to end is for Jesus just to go, Jesus lets go, it's over. Everything holds together by His great power. Which is why Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image. Because God is Father, Son, Spirit. Why is this significant for the, the church in last days, Laodicea? But why would Jesus have to say that I am the source, the origin of the creation of God? Why would this be important? Because for the first time in literally 2,000 years or further, the first time in history... Just a scant 200 years ago, suddenly man began to really question his origin. A man by the name of Darwin came along. Other philosophers came along in this era, in this age, and began to promote different thoughts, different theologies, different philosophies, different entire faith systems on where we come from, on what our origin is, on what the source is of our creation. Evolution. By the way, did you know that most scientists, most clear-thinking scientists today now concede that evolution cannot be the, the source of our existence? Our school system and our colleges are way behind in catching up to this scientific understanding. And I'm not talking about Christian scientists or scientists who are Christians. <laughs> I'm talking about your average scientist out there who really studies it through. The majority are coming out and saying, you know, I don't think evolution works. Those who are still clinging to evolution are making it longer and longer and longer just to try and make it work. You know, the Earth gets older and older. It's just amazing how at one point it was a few billion years old, now it's like six and a half billion years old. And as long as it needs to be to make the theory work. Well, that's not a very good theory. But what's interesting now is what we see coming up in our time, the newer scientific theory, that we were planted or populated here, we were seeded here by aliens from another galaxy. There's good science for you. Speaking of galaxies, you guys want to see something cool? Our youth group saw this the other night. My daughter was so impressed by it, she emailed it to me. We live in the same house, but this is how we communicate. So uh, you may not want to be coming to my parenting class. So, no. Uh, she sent it to me, and I, I wanted to show it to you. This is really cool. It's kind of hard to see. In fact, Mom, in the back, we just flip off the, the light switch. I just want you to see this as clear as you can. This is called the Whirlpool Galaxy. The Whirlpool Galaxy. We actually, isn't that beautiful? This is an actual uh, picture taken, the Whirlpool Galaxy. But we'll, we'll, this is incredible. Here for the scientists, again, he thinks that we are seated by aliens. 
look at what is at the very heart, the center of the whirlpool galaxy. It's called the X Factor. What do you see? Isn't that amazing? That God builds into the very creation. <laughs> in this whirlpool galaxy, far, far away, in a place that up until now in history, no one could have seen this, no one could have known, but our scientists, they, they've gotten, you know, telescopes, whatever scopes they call them, and, and they can see far, far away. And even when we look as far away from the earth as we can, we still see the cross, don't we? Because that's where the source of our salvation is. You can turn the light back on. Amazing stuff, Amazing stuff, at the heart of that whirlpool galaxy well Jesus is saying hey I am the source I am the origin church of the people don't forget that don't miss that he looks ahead to Laodicea and he reveals himself with these three powerful characterizations I am the amen answering relativity I am the faithful and true witness answering by the way atheism and I am the beginning or the source of the creation of God answering both evolution and questions of our very origin. Interesting. Number three, the punitive admonition. Three basic problems now that we're going to see going on in Laodicea. Three basic problems. And problem number one, which we've looked at pretty extensively already, the power of the people. This is a problem. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And remember, Jesus here is not talking to individuals as much as he's talking to the church. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're politically correct. And I will have nothing to do with that. The church has never been more politically correct than it is in the world today. When we watch churches arguing about what they're going to do politically, when we see them uh, pulling out of support for Israel, when we watch churches arguing over what are they going to do as far as homosexual leadership in their churches, and just forgetting about what the Bible has to say about any of it, let's just work this out in ourselves. Political correctness. Churches that say, and I've shared this before, man, 30 years ago, we were not tolerant of divorce, but we are now, so maybe that's just the way we need to view homosexuality. Let's just be tolerant of it. Times are changing. Let's flow with the time. Political correctness. Power of the people. That's a major problem in Laodicea. Doubting absolutes. Questioning God's existence. Curious even about our own creation. I'm amazed at how many Christians so quickly doubt the possibility of seven literal days of creation. Now, you may say, well, Rick, you're simple-minded, you're not a scientist, you don't understand these things. No, I, I think I do. Now, you may be a little more brilliant than me, that wouldn't be a hard feat. But, is it possible that God, the creator of all things, did it in seven days? Let's start with that premise. Is that even possible? Tell you what, that's the God I believe in. <laughs> if he wants to create something in seven days, he's going to do it in seven days. And the Bible, by the way, is explicit, and I won't go into it tonight, but you can go back to Genesis chapter 1, and each and every day is explicitly defined as, in the Hebrew language, a 24-hour period, and there's no getting around that if you just read the Bible literally. But Christians today will say, well, but maybe each day was like a thousand years. Or maybe Adam and Eve were in the garden for a billion years, and that's where the evolution happened. Maybe... God created the world, but he did it through the process of evolution. Why does the church say that? Because evolutionary theory is over here, and it's trying to accommodate the world. It's trying to be politically correct. That's all it is. And I'm amazed at how quickly Christians will backpedal when challenged. Can I encourage you, instead of backpedaling when someone challenges the, the, the solid foundation of your faith, go back to the Bible and study it out. 
and then go back and tell the person what the truth is but don't backpedal don't give up don't assume somehow it's just it, it, it was mistranslated something's wrong it's not solid I, I can't really believe no take the time take the time and get into the word and see what it really says problem number one is the power of the people problem number two in Laodicea is lukewarm lethargy this is the lethargic church that doesn't really want to take the time to study the word that doesn't want to take the time to work through the things of God that doesn't want to struggle and even suffer if they have to to be like Christ I just want to show up in my comfortable church I, I want the nice padded pews or chairs or theater seating I want the cool, slick presentation. I, I love, you know, a little video. Kind of an MTV-ish interaction would be cool. I love when the pastor gets up and he gives us three points and it's 20 minutes long and at 21 minutes we're singing the song and we're out the door. That's my kind of church. That is lukewarm. And it makes for lethargic Christians. And Jesus says, crystal clear, you've got to choose upsides. Don't play that game with me. That political correct thing may work in the political world of today. It doesn't work with me. I want you either to be hot, burning with a passionate love for me, or you be ice cold, completely reject me, but don't ride in the middle. Don't play the, lethar the lethargic person. Don't want to eat. It's interesting, there's a word in our lingo today that speaks of this lukewarm attitude. It's whatever. Whatever. Hey, what are you going to do with your afternoon? Whatever. You know? Boring. It's lethargic it's, there's no enthusiasm or passion in that I'm getting married oh yeah do you love her well whatever <laughs> I mean if she heard that you wouldn't be getting married you know I mean, it would change everything whatever it's this lethargic view of life you've heard the question what do you think of all the ignorance and apathy in our world today I don't know and I don't care <laughs> ignorance apathy I don't know and I don't care where's the conviction Jesus would say where is the heart Get hot or get cold. Be passionate. Be wildly in love with me or have nothing to do with me. But don't ride that fence. Don't walk up the middle. It's interesting. Why would he say, I wish that you were cold or hot? Hot I understand. You know? To be hot for Jesus, literally. And I know what that means in our culture. I know about the passion and, and the sensuality of that. Hey, apply that to the Lord. It's okay to be hot for the Lord, passionately in love with Him. I understand that. Why would Jesus say, hey, be hot or be cold? It's interesting, when someone is cold, when someone is cold, they're workable. They have a firm position that you can chip away at. You can work on that. You can at least have a healthy debate with someone who is absolutely firm in their absolute rejection of God. Okay, well, let's talk about that rejection. Because they're so sure of, their of themselves where they are, they're not going to be afraid to talk about it. Man, I'll tell you what, I've seen more people who were ice cold turn hot for Jesus than I have lukewarm people. The lukewarm ones are the really tough ones to convert. Why is that? Because they don't care. And you can tell me all about Jesus. I can go to your church and you got your nice little songs and your little teaching thing and you, know, you got your fellowships. That's all great. That's wonderful. It's good for you. I don't care. I'd rather sit home on the couch. You know, I got other things to do. It just doesn't matter to me. The lukewarm, whatever mentality is the hardest heart to get into because it's not a hard heart and it's not a soft heart. It's just kind of squishy. 